0: Well, Father, strengthen us as we take your word and study together. Um, We do want victory over unbelief. We want to see Christ and we want to live out the power of his resurrection in our lives. We want to walk in obedience to your word and we readily admit that we need your strength. And Father, we are easily distracted, easily discouraged, and so build us up in the faith today. Thank you so much for the teachings of our Lord Jesus that we've been studying together. And I pray that you'll use this to strengthen your church. Strengthen us as individuals and grow us in our faith, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was a little boy, I used to hear my father and um, a couple of my uncles talking about prayer meetings that they had early in their ministry years. This would be in the early 1950s uh, when they were early in the ministry and I had an uncle was planting a church in South Dakota in a rural area and uh, my dad and others had gone out there to assist him and they had an all-night prayer meeting. You ever been to an all night prayer meeting now i don 't know um, i don 't know if they prayed literally through the night or if they just prayed up until about midnight, but that sounds brutal to me. <laughs> I remember one story that they told that we used to laugh about, picturing it in our minds. They had some trouble in their area there with some of the neighbor boys going around and tipping over outhouses. There was no running water, indoor toilets, and they had outhouses there still. And so my dad and my uncles had taken some two-by-fours and nailed them to the sides of the outhouse and picked it up and set it over from the hole and then covered the hole with cornstalks. And they were in their prayer meeting, on their knees, in the living room, late in the night, and they heard these guys start yelling, and sure enough, they got one of them. And they said that was the end of their prayer meeting. <laughs> when I was a student at Appalachian Bible College, each fall and spring, we would have what we called our, our day of prayer. I, I have to tell you that I kind of dreaded that day. It was long, somewhat difficult. How about you? How's your prayer life? How high on the list of the spiritual disciplines is prayer? I find it difficult to maintain a consistent, disciplined prayer life. The Word of God speaks a good bit about prayer, and I invite you to turn this morning to Matthew chapter 6, and in fact, where we are in our Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus is going to address prayer in some very specific ways. We can benefit from this and we can learn, and I hope in the big picture, that we will all be stirred in our hearts, renewed in our minds through the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace to first of all respond to our Lord's instruction and be very careful as he warns us about how we pray today, but I think at a greater level than that even that we would as followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and children of our Heavenly Father be characterized by meaningful prayer lives. In Matthew chapter 6, we are about halfway through the Sermon on the Mount as Matthew records it. It's a very familiar passage of Scripture, and I'll remind you that in chapter 6, Jesus is beginning a warning passage. Notice the wording of chapter 6, verse 1. He says, "...beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven." in chapter 5 we've we've dealt with the beatitudes and we've dealt with a growing righteousness through the teaching of christ that our righteousness is to surpass that of the pharisees It's to be a righteousness that comes by the grace of God and is built in our lives by His power. It's not something that, like the Pharisees of old, we can muster up through some kind of external conformity to the law. No, not at all. What Jesus is teaching is that it is the spirit of the law, it is the reality of the grace of God living out in us, that we walk in obedience, that we fulfill the law that way. And so Jesus has been teaching and he's been teaching about this humility he's been teaching about this this meekness he has been teaching about um just an internal righteousness that people will see our good works and in turn glorify our father in heaven all of that in chapter five and it's and it's as though when he's teaching it trips in his mind our lord jesus and he realizes uh, i'm teaching humanoids i'm teaching people of this earth i'm teaching vessels of flesh and as we grow in righteousness, and as God begins to do His work in us, the residual of the flesh, the part of us that is still struggling with sin, that will only be fully redeemed in the presence of the Lord one day in heaven, why we're working our righteousness, and we're growing in the grace of God, and we're, we're strengthening in our spiritual life, and all of a sudden, why, as a matter of fact, we become quite proud of our godliness. As a matter of fact, we're just quite concerned that other people would esteem us as being very spiritual. It's interesting how deceptive our hearts are. Interesting how we can take the things that are most sacred, things that have to do with an intimate walk with the Lord, bring them into the public arena and use them to adulate ourselves and it has nothing to do with the elevating of Christ or God's name. That's what Jesus is talking about and so the warning Beware, you better watch out that this righteousness I've been teaching you about in chapter 5 as you live it out now in your everyday spiritual disciplines that the distortions of the wickedness of the residuals of the fallen heart will make it to where you become so into elevating yourself that others might see you. And think of you rather than think of your heavenly father. If you do that, know this, he says, that's your reward. You want to you exercise your spirituality in some kind of public way so that people will esteem you as being godly and ooh, look at that guy. There it is, that's your reward because your heavenly father who looks right into the recesses of your heart and sees in secret, he says, he will not reward you for that. And so he gives three illustrations Three areas of our spiritual world that are evidently exceptionally easy to abuse. They're very common areas for followers of God. Now, the first is alms giving, and that's what we talked about last week. Alms is that idea of giving money or food or even clothing to those who are very needy. And so that's the first illustration that Jesus... Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet. Don't blow your trumpet and let everybody know, Hey, look, I'm really helping these people out. Don't clang your money around before you drop it in the offering basket make sure everybody knows what a good giver you are. The second illustration is our text for today, and it has to do with our prayer life. Jesus is gonna turn a little bit and he's gonna to add to this section some specific instruction about prayer. And that's that well-known, um, prayer of, for that he's teaching the disciples. We call it the Lord's Prayer. In many ways, some, some have renamed it the disciples' Prayer, how they should pray. And then he's going to get to an element of spirituality that most of us know very little about and that in the Western church we have not exercised very much, and that is fasting. In fact, we're going to find out that though though the Word of God illustrates fasting quite a bit, that there's very limited specific instruction in the Bible about fasting, but fasting in this day, in first century Israel, was something that his audience would have been well aware of. And Jesus is pointing out that you beware as you exercise these spiritual disciplines, the exercise of giving, the, the discipline of prayer, the discipline of fasting, that all three of these things can easily be twisted and abused so that you use them to elevate yourself instead of to focus on God. He calls people who do that hypocrites, and his audience clearly would have understood exactly every one of his illustrations. We've been talking about that cultural historical context, that element of Bible study that's so important to understand. And, and as Jesus clicks off these illustrations, his audience would be able to picture in their mind's eye, why they would have grown up with this stuff since they were a little kid. They've seen the Pharisees trumpeting their giving in public. They've seen the Pharisees stopping on the street corners to pray out loud. They would have been able to picture this whole thing. You also get the idea as Jesus is teaching that he's he's aware of the Pharisees' presence and he's kind of poking them in the eye a little bit with this teaching. Let's read our text. It's Matthew chapter 6, begins with verse 5. I've entitled our message, Problems with Prayer or Prayer Problems, because Jesus is going to point out a big problem with the prayer life. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Remember, we pointed out the parallelism of these three passages. For example, in verse 2, that they would be praised by others. In verse 5 here, that they would be seen by others. And same thing in fasting in verse 16, that they may be seen by others. Three illustrations, giving, praying, fasting. Back to verse 5 they stand on the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Let's read verses 7 and 8, though we won't get to them this morning. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then you can see Jesus' mind goes to, so pray like this, and that's where the Lord's prayer comes in. We're going to be discussing prayer for a, a couple of weeks here. Today, prayer problems. As we begin, Jesus addresses, first of all, number one, the practice of prayer in our lives, the practice of prayer. Notice what he says in verse five. He says, And when you pray. And don't you see that there's an assumption there? And when you pray, Jesus is assuming that you pray, he's speaking to his audience. Not only is there an assumption that you pray, but he's talking to you. It's a personal word, specifically to his disciples, I think. If you flip back to chapter 5, verse 1, we're reminded that this gathering on the hillside, where the crowds have gathered, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying... Them, is that describing his disciples or the crowds? I think it's both. I think of this Sermon on the Mount as Jesus specifically teaching his disciples, and the crowd is listening in. And the crowd is no doubt consists of some level of those who are curious or would like to be disciples of Christ at some level. And it's a large crowd. But he's speaking to his disciples. And the idea here is that there is an expectation, not only is there an assumption, but there's an expectation that if you're my disciple, you pray. I think it's incomprehensible to Jesus that he would have disciples who don't pray. When you pray, not if you pray, when you pray. You stop and think about it. We have many examples, don't we, in Scripture that God's people are praying people. Clearly as well, God's people Israel are characterized, the Jewish people are characterized by people who are known for their praying. And even to this day, if you go go to Israel and go to Jerusalem, there's part of the wall, they call it the Wailing Wall. People go there and do their prayers publicly. It's a very meaningful spot. And if you stop and think about when God called Abraham to be his chosen one through whom to create a nation through which he would bless the world, and he made the Abrahamic covenant, God spoke to Abraham, and Abraham spoke to God, and you have you have right from the beginning of the Israelite nation and the Jewish people, a people who were familiar with talking with God. All right, we have many stories like that, don't we? And God's even back farther in the Old Testament, God spoke to Noah. They talked to each other. We don't know what his voice sounds like. We don't know what that exchange was exactly like. I'm thinking about Samuel as a little boy, when uh, God wanted to raise up this little boy at the temple where he was, and in the night, God spoke to him three times. Finally, he realized this was God speaking to him. It's interesting, isn't it? And we have examples of God's people praying throughout Scripture, prayers that are recorded for us, that... We can learn from. They are models. Moses was a man of prayer. Moses was known as an intercessor. One who prayed to God on behalf of other people. Nehemiah, chapter 1, before Nehemiah, with a broken heart, moved to rebuild the walls in Jerusalem. What did he do? He prayed, and we have in detail his prayer. One of my favorite prayers to read, and I find it very encouraging, you might as well, is 2 Chronicles chapter 20. 2 Chronicles 20 is Jehoshaphat, surrounded, ready to be overwhelmed and overrun by wicked armies. He knows that he's outmanned, outpowered, outgunned, and he's going to be slaughtered. And so in 2 Chronicles 20, when Jehoshaphat was king of Jerusalem and he didn't know what to do, he prayed. And there's an extensive detailing of his prayer. He calls the men, the women, and the children together. Not a bad model, is it? Don't know what to do? Ready to be wiped out? (laughs) Look up. Pray, right? You think about prayer, it's kind of an interesting thing, isn't it? On the one hand, we know that if we jumped in our helicopter and went all around the world, and somebody said to me after the early service, if I was in the helicopter, I'd be praying. But um, if you're in a helicopter and you flew all around the world, everywhere you go, even if you're not with people who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the one true God, the creator of the world, Yahweh, people pray everywhere, don't they? Except for hardcore atheists, who I guess pray to themselves, people pray. You can go to the depths of the Amazon rainforest to people who have very little exposure to outside world and no books and no writing. And what do they do? They pray. You can go to other parts of the world and there's people who have molded images and pictures and they have them on their wall and they literally have thousands of gods to whom they pray. And they have prayer routines. Other people bow down in front of statues, little fat guys with crossed legs and stuff, and they pray. They pray. What is that? But we're talking about a biblical mindset. We're talking about people who pray to the living God. I take it that this is evidence, this reality of prayer is one of the, around the world, even to people who don't know the true living God and Jesus, that there is something in the heart of man that recognizes there's someone greater than he. And they want to communicate with him. And so Jesus makes the assumption that we pray. There is a practice of prayer among God's people. Turn with me quickly to 2 Timothy chapter 2, and let's define prayer just a little bit, because prayer is a little bit hard to define. We know that it is communion with God. It is, it is when we turn our attention and direct our hearts in fellowship and communion with God. We speak to God. If you think about it, it's kind of weird, A grown person sitting there talking to someone they can't see nor have ever seen. It is evidence that prayer cannot happen apart from faith. In fact, the entire Christian life, of course, cannot happen apart from faith in Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, giving instruction to Timothy, and by the way, 1 Timothy chapter 2 is best taken to be instruction about public prayer in the church, because one of the questions that's going to come up in the text today, when Jesus exhorts us to pray privately and not in a place where we are seen is, well, then what do we do about public prayer? We've already done that in our service today. Is that appropriate or inappropriate? And one of the answers is, is that in other places of scripture, we have many examples and models of public prayer. And we have an instruction to Pastor Timothy by Paul how to pray in public and things that the church should be praying for together. So our passage in Matthew chapter 6 today is not to be taken as a shutdown of public or corporate prayer, but he, Jesus is making a point, rather, of how easily our hearts can take prayer and when we pray in public and distort it and turn it into a self-adulating mechanism rather than true communication with God. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute, but in defining prayer, look what Paul says to Timothy, chapter 2, verse 1. He says, Timothy, first of all, so it's a priority, I urge you, so it's important to him, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. And he goes on to list some of those people. So when we pray, we understand that there is sort of a variety of ways of praying. The idea there of supplications has to do with specific requests. Somebody has spoken to me about a burden on their heart. Somebody has told me they're going on a trip. Somebody has a need. Somebody has a weakness. And I'm going to make supplications. I'm going to ask God specific requests. He uses the next word, prayers, which is just a broad word uh, covering a variety of ways that we pray. It doesn't have necessarily a specific kind of prayer in mind, but it's a broad word for prayers. Intercessions has the ramification of a specific prayer on behalf of another person. It's not just a request that we're making to God. A supplication could be a request for myself. God, I need food. I don't have any food. I'm going to make supplication. A request. General praying, uh, at large, that's less than defined. Intercessions is that I, on behalf of you, whether you know it or not, am praying for you. And thanksgiving. The Psalms, for example, are filled with examples of gratitude to God and being thankful to God. We are to be characterized in prayer as being thankful people. So prayer is when I communicate to the living God of the universe, my Heavenly Father, through my relationship with Christ, and I am invited to talk to Him. I can talk to Him. And I talk to Him in a variety of ways, specifically in prayer. That's the practice of prayer, back to Matthew 6. And Jesus says, when you pray, there's an assumption, there's an expectation that we will continue to pray, but Jesus very quickly moves into a problem area with prayer. The problem with prayer, number two, look at this. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and in the street corners that they may be seen by others. Now, this is a case where Jesus' audience, like I said, growing up there, would be able to picture in their minds these Pharisees in all of their religious garb. Yes, they prayed at the temple, and there, were, there was a routine of praying at the temple. And they could picture or they could hear the loudness of the prayers. But it says on the street corners, it says, ESV translates it. And this is an interesting nuance. You can learn it from the language of the, of the original Greek language. And look at chapter 6, verse 2. When he warns about giving to the needy by trumpeting it in public, And that the hypocrites do this also in the synagogues and in the streets. The Greek word there for streets is more of a narrow, smaller alley. So perhaps that was actually even where poor people hung out. But these hypocrites were able to find these spots and make them, expose them publicly, making sure everybody saw them going down an alley that someone dressed like that or somebody of their statue would never normally go down that alley so that people would say, oh, look at them. Yeah, they made sure people saw them going here where these poor people were, where they would give. The word street corners that we see in verse 5 is the idea of a wide road. The main thoroughfare, not a narrow street, but it adds the word street corner. And so it's the idea that there were many people doing business. This would be a crowded intersection or a large thoroughfare where many people would be. And so the Pharisees, see, they had a routine to go to the temple and pray. Jesus knew and everybody in the audience knew that they would delay and they would find themselves just a few minutes behind schedule and they would be at the most busy intersection of the street corners on their way to the temple to pray. And they would hear the trumpet sound for prayer time and they in their devotedness to God would have to just stop right there and pray out loud on the street corner so that everybody would know that they are very spiritual. And they take their prayer life extremely seriously. And so they abused it. It is interesting that um, in the context of prayer abuse, um, Dr. John MacArthur in his New Testament commentary quotes another commentary, an older uh, Bible student named William Barclay. William Barclay lists in his commentary on the Gospel of Matthew Five ways that the, in the first century, the Jews abused, or in Israel, first century Jews abused prayer, how prayer had evolved. They were a praying people. Don't get me, we've mentioned that. But there were ways specifically that prayer had become distorted. Let me list them for you. MacArthur writes this list, is where I got, got it, uh, out of his Gospel of Matthew, New Testament commentary. Number one, prayer in this culture at this time, and Jesus' audience would have been able to relate to this, even be involved in it. Number one, prayer had become ritualized. It had become ritualized. There was some very common, routine prayers that were taught to you as an Israelite child, a Jewish child, for one thing would be taught the Shemai. This is Deuteronomy chapter 6, Deuteronomy 11, Numbers 15, and it was put together as an extensive prayer. It's, you'll recognize part of it. It's, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, is how it starts. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And it would go on and on. They had a shorter version and they had a longer version. And the routine and ritualization of it had become such that you had to quote this prayer. All good Jews would pray this prayer before daylight every morning. And they would pray it before midnight, twice a day. There were other prayers that were taught by the rabbis. One was that um, it, it was actually, it had a Hebrew word that meant 18 benedictions, 18 prayers and they memorized them, and these 18 prayers were well known, and they were taught by different rabbis that you prayed these three times a day. If you were devout, and you were devoted to God, then you would pray these prayers, these 18 benedictions, you would pray them three times a day, you would pray them in the morning before noon, you would pray them in the afternoon time, and you would pray them again in the evening. Now, you can only imagine that as you are raised up as a child with the Shammai, for example, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you wake up in the morning, and it's not yet daylight, and you got to get your prayer in before daylight. And every day of your life, you crank this prayer out. And every night before you retire, you crank this prayer out. And according to Exodus 6, the Shammai, you said it standing up in the morning, and you said it sitting down at night. And then you have these 18 benedictions that you've been taught by your father and your grandfather and by the local rabbi. And you've got these 18 prayers and you can see where these prayers become ritual and you rattle them off. That's our tendency, isn't it? You've heard people in other faiths even do that. There's even systems where you have a string of beads, and you so that you can count how many times you say and repeat over and over this prayer, and you string it along, and you feel them so that you have uh, the beads in your hand, so that you can keep count of how many times you're doing it. And it's the ritualization of prayer. That's one abuse. Another abuse is presca- prescribed prayers. Prescribed prayers. The rabbis taught them and the audience would have known these prayers. That in different settings, you would use certain prayers. For example, if you sat down to a meal and it was a meal of vegetables, then you would say a certain prayer that you say with a meal of vegetables. If you sat down at another meal and it was meat that you were eating, you had a different prayer that you would pray, thanking God for the meat. In the morning, if you woke up and it was a beautiful day, you had a certain prayer that you prayed because of the light. At night, if you were in a scary or dark place, you prayed a different prayer because of the darkness. And these prayers were repeated and they were used contextually. And so you had these prescribed prayers. third abuse or third way that prayer was being distorted was limiting prayer to specific times and occasions. Limiting prayer to specific times and occasions. Now, we know from the New Testament that even the apostles did this and the disciples. In Acts chapter 3, verse 1, that's that fairly well-known story where Peter and John are going down at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, to the temple to pray. And that's where they healed the lame man, and then they end up getting in a ruckus and getting thrown in jail. But there were these hours where you prayed. But with the limiting and and the ritualization and the specific prayer times, here's what happens. I don't even think about prayer the other time because it's not time to pray. The fourth abuse or distortion of prayer is the esteeming of long prayers. The esteeming of long prayers. Now, we live in a culture of short prayer, especially public prayer. I mean, if we're in church and somebody starts praying for a while, And you kind of get the feeling that they're going to pray a while, man, you start thinking, how long is this guy going to pray? The next thing you think is, I'm going to time this guy. And then at dinner, you talk about the fact that that guy prayed for seven minutes. He went eight minutes. Well, it wasn't that long ago that guys like C.H. Spurgeon would teach their pastoral students that if you didn't pray for 12 to 15 minutes in your public pastoral prayer, it wasn't a legitimate prayer, basically. People would stand and the pastor would lead in a prayer that went 15 minutes. He he did say that prayers that go 20 minutes or longer is getting a little too long. We're kind of sissy Christians nowadays, aren't we? You know, that mindset, that's exactly what was going on. If you pray for a long time, A, you're spiritual, and B, the rabbis taught that the longer you prayed, the more likely it would be that God would hear your prayer. One of the things they would do to add to their prayers is they would add adjectives in their description of God. And so they would would add like dozens of adjectives in front of Yahweh's name almighty powerful loving holy on and on they would go before they would even get to him and you think about you think about the the dark slippery ugliness of the human heart that would pray to god so that people will think i'm something and so there's another distortion Fifthly, repetitious, meaningless prayer. Repetitious, meaningless prayer. Repeating a phrase over and over and over again. You let your eyes go to chapter 6, verse 7. We read that at the end of our text today. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, so because they think they will be heard for their many words over and over and over again. Repetitious, But what Jesus, there's a list of some of the abuses of prayer and the problems with prayer. But the problem specifically that Jesus is dealing with today in our text is number six. It is praying to be seen and heard by others on the abuse list. Praying to be seen and heard by others. Jesus says, you stand on the street corners. So that they'll see you. Truly, I say to you, you have received your reward. In other words, those are prayers that don't make it to heaven. It's meaningless. And so then Jesus moves in verse 6 to some actual principles for prayer. Number three in our... Outline. The first thing we looked at was the practice of prayer that when you pray, and we are to be people who practice prayer. Number two, we have the problems with prayer that Jesus is addressing, namely the problem of public prayer for my self-adulation and the puffing up of my own pride, my spiritual pride, and it is meaningless and worthless. Number three, some principles for prayer, verse six. But when you pray, Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who's in secret. And when your father who sees in secret will reward you, we have sort of a when, where, how here by Jesus. When you pray, the idea there again is the expectation and the assumption that God's people will pray. So that raises the question when do we pray? I don't know. When do you pray? The word could be translated here a little bit. The idea is Jesus is saying, and so whenever you pray. So I think it's best not to understand that Jesus is trying to prescribe a specific time that you have to have so many times a day for so long that you pray. Sometimes we do that to ourselves, don't we? We think, I, I've got to get into the discipline of prayer. So every day I'm gonna get up and I'm gonna pray here and I'm gonna pray for 30 minutes. And then on my lunch break, I'm gonna take a walk and I'm gonna pray for 25 minutes. And then after supper, I'm gonna have devotions. And I'm gonna pray for 15 minutes and I'm gonna do it. in about three days into it, we've got it all messed up. And we're all feeling bad because I only prayed for 17 minutes instead of all these times I was disciplining myself to pray. And I think we should take this at what Jesus said. Listen, whenever you pray, which is all the time. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, what did Paul say? Pray without ceasing. How do you do that? I think the idea here is, as we're going to get in a minute, is we're dealing with my Father here. That I have a mindset of communion with God on an ongoing basis, and I develop this. I I have this kind of a mental culture going on where I am communing with God. I'm praying whenever you pray. So I think it's less a prescription of having a time specifically laid out to pray. Although that, I don't think that's I don't think he's teaching against that. I think if you get up at six o'clock every morning and pray, that's a wonderful thing. Don't think that because you do that, you're more spiritual than someone else. But the idea is, you are praying and God's people pray, and how many of us would be embarrassed to publicly report up on the screen how many minutes a day we're actually involved in prayer? It's difficult. He goes on to say, where to pray? When you pray, pray all the time. Where do you pray? Go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. So I think what he's talking about here is that he's saying you need to to make sure that you don't capitulate to the weakness of our own flesh to use public praying as an opportunity to bring adulation to myself or to imagine myself that other people are thinking all these good thoughts about me that I pray in private, unobserved and undisturbed. Go into your closet, number one, you will be unobserved. That will test the metal of your prayer life. How many of us pray differently in public than we pray in private? We don't even use the same kind of phrases when we're alone than when we're in public. We need to maybe examine our hearts as to why we pray that way. So we go in where we are unobserved, and I think the inner room and shutting the door also is an opportunity to be undisturbed. How easy it is for us to just be so undisturbed, I mean disturbed and interrupted in our prayer life. And basically, one of the biggest things we can do is you have to leave your phone somewhere else. Shut it off. Don't try to pray where you have your phone with you. Now, I think another thing about this unobserved room is, and we don't, we're not going to take time to, to, uh, to study in our prayer, little prayer series here for the next week or so, we're not going to talk too much about body position. Some people can really get caught up in that. In fact, it's kind of popular right now to be caught up in that. That if you pray a certain way, even in evangelical world, And actually, what it ends up, kind of cross-legged and kind of turn your hands up. It really helps me focus on prayer. There is no body position prescribed in Scripture. There's examples of people praying in all kinds of ways. One of the more notable ones would be Jonah in the belly of a whale. I don't know what position his body was in, but that was a real prayer. We have a snapshot of a brief prayer, one of the shorter prayers. A guy up on a cross, crying out for mercy, prayed with his hands nailed, spread out. So don't get so caught up in that. On the other hand, I think there is something when you're unobserved and you're not doing it for any other motive to bow down and kneel so that your body matches the desired humility of your heart. I think that's a wonderful exercise to pray kneeling. And I think you'll find you'll be much more comfortable if you're in an inner room with the door shut, unobserved and undisturbed. On your knees, you'll be able to focus and pray better. By the way, there's, I noticed something going on in prayer world, and what struck me about this is that I observed it in young people who grew up in Christian homes, and most of whom are not really walking with the Lord now, but they have really a pretty strong background in, in, in a Christian biblical background. And I have observed in social media that it's common, and I don't know if you've seen this or not, they, they say when they're talking to somebody, and they'll say, I'm channeling out good thoughts to you today. Or there's, uh, in one case, uh, some people, they had a, a loss of a loved one, and they were wanting to encourage one another, and they're talking about, man, I'm channeling all good thoughts to you today. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> If that is not just utter nonsense, it is at least utter pagan. Listen, you have no ability to channel out energy to somebody unless you are into some metaphysical, bizarre, antichrist world. Jesus never taught that stuff. Prayer is not me channeling out some energy to you to make you feel better today. That is not intercessory prayer. That is just like some Eastern mystical yoga deal. I don't know what it is. I I don't even know. But when you pray, you pray to your Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name. How do we pray? We pray personally and intimately. Look how he says, "...and pray to your Father who is in secret." and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Notice that he doesn't say, you are praying to Almighty, Holy, Creator, God of the universe, who if you don't watch yourself, can flick his fingers and put you into an invisible mist, and evaporate you. He is so awesome and holy. No, he says, this is your Father to whom you're praying. So when you pray, and we should pray all the time, not just prescribed times, where you pray, you should pray unobserved and undisturbed. How you pray is with an intimacy and a personal nature of a child to a father. Pray to your father. We'll talk about that more when we discuss the Lord's Prayer as a model for our praying. I want to conclude, though, by just focusing on this idea of your father who sees in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you it occurred to me that we will strengthen our prayer life if we recognize the involvement of the godhead in our prayer life i'm praying to my father that's the that's the head of the godhead so to speak God the Father, and then you know we have a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son was the one who became incarnate, the second member of the Godhead, the first member of the Godhead, God the Father, no one has ever seen Him, nobody can look at Him, you would be evaporated into a mist if you saw Him. Jesus is the exact representation of Him that we can look at. He's the one who put on flesh so He could talk our language and then the Holy Spirit. All three distinct personalities, separate roles and function, but all three one and the same. Go figure. But as we pray, can I encourage you to build your prayer life on a theological basis of understanding who you're praying to and how it works? You're praying to your Heavenly Father. Listen. Prayer is not an opportunity for us to adulate ourselves. It is some kind of heinous form of idolatry, isn't it, for me to pray publicly so that I'm thinking about what people think about me. I'm not even thinking about the words that I say, and I'm thinking how great it would be if everybody would think really good thoughts about me right now. That's nothing other than some kind of, of self-idolatry and using God for my worship people will think of me more than they would think of God. In our culture, we would never think of having a ceramic god or some kind of wooden totem pole in the backyard where we go worship and bow down and pray. But no, we will pray in such a way that we're really praying to ourselves. Drawing attention to ourselves. It's very convicting. But when I pray, let me remember that I'm praying to the first member of the Godhead, Almighty God, and... I am faithful in prayer because I'm praying to a God who has the capacity to respond to prayer. He's taught me to pray. He's asked me to pray. He's invited me into his presence and he is an omnipotent God. He's all powerful. He's omniscient. So he knows all things. He's omnipresent. There's nothing that can catch him by surprise. That's God, my father, that I'm praying to someone who has the power and capacity to absolutely answer my prayer doesn't catch him by surprise it doesn't stump him he doesn't have incomplete resources he's God the father we won't take time to talk to turn there but let me just remind you Hebrews chapter 4 beginning with verse 14 talks about us having a high priest who can sympathize with our weaknesses, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is now ascended into heaven and seated at the right hand of the Father where He makes intercession for us. So when I go into my inner room and I shut the door and I'm trying to overcome my problems with prayer, let me be encouraged to pray in faith believing that I'm praying, number one, to my Father, the number one member of the Godhead, who has the power and capacity to respond to my prayer. Number two, I'm praying with the assistance of Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is an intercessor on my behalf. In other words, as I'm praying, Jesus is praying for me to the Father. Hebrews 4.14, you look it up. Finally, the Holy Spirit is involved in prayer. In Romans chapter 8 it says that when I'm praying and I'm not even sure how to pray, that the Holy Spirit assists me. You read the text carefully before the Father with groanings that cannot even be uttered. It's not my groanings that they're talking about. It's talking about some kind of a divine language that the Holy Spirit prays to the Father, communicating at a level that I can't even communicate to, the, to God the Father. Father, and that the Holy Spirit is praying to the Father for me as another form of intercession. The entire Godhead is involved in the prayer, prayers of God's people. Isn't that remarkable? I'm praying to my Heavenly Father who has all the capacity and power to answer prayer according to His will, for my benefit and for His glory. I'm praying in the name of Jesus who is my intercessor seated at the right hand of the Father. And he sympathizes with my weaknesses, which helps him intercede for me. It's a little bit like we're praying and God can't get it. And oh, this is heresy. We're praying and we're praying in our weaknesses. And God is like, what are they talking about? This is not true. This is not true. I'm, I'm just helping us understand a little bit. God knows everything before it ever happens. And he knows everything beyond knowing everything. And so he turns to Jesus and he said, you are a human. What are they talking about being tempted by this situation? Why would that tempt him? Why would they be struggling with fatigue in this area? God doesn't know temptation. God doesn't know fatigue. Jesus knows fatigue and temptation. And so that's what Hebrews 4 is talking about. We have a high priest who can relate to our weaknesses because he suffered as we suffer in the form of human flesh. And it's as though Jesus is there explaining to God, on our behalf, our weaknesses. And God is saying, oh, okay, I get it. That's not true, okay, but it just sort of helps us understand. I probably just preach heresy. (laughs) So how's your prayer life? I don't know if it's a big deal if we called an all-night prayer meeting and only like seven people showed up. I'm not sure I would blame you. On the other hand, why wouldn't we pray sometimes all night? Do we think that the conditions around us are not such that we don't need to be on our face before a holy God in supplication and prayer? How about throughout the day? Am I praying? When you pray, when you pray, do you pray? When you pray, go into your closet and shut the door. Can you identify an inner room in your space where you go and get on your knees and pray? Can I challenge our church? Is there, what, close to 200 people in here right now? 150, 200 people? What if... This week, two times, two times, you slipped away without announcing it. You don't get up, "Uh, I got to go pray now. (laughs) You'll ruin it, you'll ruin it. That's how bad our hearts are. Just quietly, when no one is looking, go shut the door and get on your knees and pray. I wonder what God might do In our lives and in our homes and our families, if we really were people who, when they prayed, they prayed. How's your prayer life? Father, we need your strength. We want to be close to you. We want to have a sense of the Holy Spirit at work in us. We need you. Father, would you teach us to pray? Thank you for this direct instruction from the mouth of our Lord Jesus, putting his finger on a problem area, the area of pride and arrogance and wanting to adulate ourselves to lift up and puff up ourselves among others, that people would perceive us as somehow more spiritual. Please forgive us. Quiet our hearts, humble our hearts, and help us to just be... People who pray to you in secret. People who can pour out their hearts to you as a loving Heavenly Father. Not some kind of ritualistic prescribed hour or rhyme of prayer. But that we just commune and converse and we pray. Thank you for the role of the Lord Jesus Christ as our intercessor. As the Holy Spirit. As one who represents us even at times when we don't even know what to pray. Father, would you grow us in our understanding of this mysterious aspect of our relationship with you, this aspect of praying. It's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen.